When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program. Welcome to the Begin Interview Q&A show for January. This is part two and I'm Martin Gregg. With me today are Graham Hunter, host of the Big Interview. And our guest for these shows, La Liga TV's Pete Jensen. Questions, as always, from our socios who support this podcast at patreon.com forward slash Graham Hunter. Big welcome to some new socios, Daniel Cheney, John Campbell, James Cosgrove. This show goes out to you. Thanks for joining up, guys. And our first two questions are from Twitter. First one, Michael, who says, Graham, I haven't really been keeping up with La Liga this season, but finally caught a bit of the Sevilla game last weekend. What has happened to them? Kelvin Brown says, with Sevilla still in a mess in terms of the whole club at the moment, what does Monchi need to prioritise in the summer? Should he be trusted? From the outside, it looks like fans are losing patience with him and the board. So Sevilla are currently 13th, 19 points from 20 games. This time last year, they had 44 points from the first 20 games, sitting second in the table. So what has gone wrong, guys? Michael, um, please come on. <laughs> come back to us. Start watching La Liga every week. I beg you, Calvin, I know you do. To both of you, I'm going to be cheeky in a way that when I'm on these broadcasts with Peter and Neil or Martin are pinging us questions, I, I don't usually stop to to blow my own trumpet. I'm not really, that isn't my intention to that now. I can see over Zoom uh, Pete laughing at me. Um, but I'm going to quote a column that I wrote in October, which was that, well, it read like this for ESPN, in the importance of being earnest, the brilliant Irish playwright Oscar Wilde wrote the sarcastic barb, to lose one parent, may be regarded as a misfortune. To lose both looks like carelessness. And then I said, although these are not witty creative times at FC Sevilla, it's a remark which could be adapted and offered up as a critique of their recent record when it comes to managerial appointments. In other words, to sack one coach may be regarded as a misfortune. To screw up on seven of them looks like carelessness. And what I was referring to is that since they got rid... Um, of Unai Emery in 2016 just not long after or, or lost Unai Emery it was his will to move on the club prior to um, Lopetegui had made seven coaching appointments and got rid of them got six of them out the door almost immediately so Lopetegui being sacked not only by the time he went seemed inevitable and I know Pete's got views that probably they, they dragged it out too long but to think that um, in 2020 he won a European trophy again for Sevilla and to think that when last season Sevilla went to Osasuna and drew 0-0 with Rakitic missing a penalty in the 91st minute to, to take three points which would have put them literally at the heels of league leaders Real Madrid and with a serious possibility of of if not winning the title then at least looking like they were going to you know putting the putting the skid marks on Real Madrid shorts to now is just an, an enormous drop off of, of conviction of quality and when I wrote that about their their horrible record of first selecting the right coach then backing that coach giving him the right resources, but being sure that this was a person who would fit their very distinctive lifestyle, philosophy, ideology down at the Nervion. Monchi had done a bad job. I also think it's really, really important that 
we accept that that what looks like a massive collapse at the moment, Monchi's been setting the table for this for quite a long time, in that across several of his excursions into the transfer market, the place where genuinely he was um, for a long time not only the best in the world, but the best I've seen in my lifetime. There, there are competitors, if you think about um, particularly clubs like Benfica and Porto and Sporting, how they sign and sell. And there are others. But across my lifetime, I would argue that in terms of what you invest, how you play and what you win with the players you've invested in, and then what you sell the majority of those players, whether they're home developed or they're bought on for, what type of profit, once she stood unequaled. Now, some of the players um, that he he's failed on are gone. But if I look at, from my personal opinion, Alex Tellez in the current squad, Bade's been brought in on loan and has settled things down a little bit. But... Um, it doesn't look special. Marcao has been signed at a time when he's barely been able to put his foot in a boot, never mind on the pitch and, and, and play. Nian Zhao unquestionably has some aerial ability and some passing ability, but, you know, makes, makes Bambi, in full Bambi mode, look like Sylvester Stallone. Um, Rekic isn't good enough. Delaney hasn't been good enough. Um, Gudeli isn't good enough. Janazai, what's he doing there? Um, Oliver Torres has skill, but is he is he sufficiently high quality to date Sevilla where they want to be, where their fans think they're going to be? Yusuf El Naziri has again got qualities, but isn't necessarily good enough. Rafa Mir is nowhere good enough. And if we look back through previous excursions into the transfer market, they are anomalous with how uh, Monchi's success rate looked. Um, Kelvin, that's what you're talking about, people getting tired of Monchi down there. But the signs, even though Sevilla were in the Champions League and um, were performing far better than they are right now, the signs have been coming because um, from Lopetegui's time of taking over in the summer of 2019 until September last year, he'd played... um, 14 times against the nominal big three of that era, which is Madrid, Atleti and Barcelona. And they'd had two wins, Sevilla had two wins, five draws and seven defeats. So eight possible points, eight points out of a possible 36 in those. At that time, across over a thousand minutes against Madrid, Barcelona and Atleti, Sevilla had scored eight times. I'm arguing there, and I don't know what Peter will say about this, but we were beginning to see the downturn. The cold wind was coming. And for that reason, Michael, there's, there's no way you can say it, that we could fully anticipate that for the best part of this season, they've been in relegation trouble. And maybe I'll pass Martin to, to, to Peter now in saying, I, I listen to Pete commentating, if not week in, week out, most weeks, uh, several times a month on Sevilla. And he's probably going to know more about the the, the current nick there and the potential health they've got between now and the end of the season. But, Michael, um, Kelvin, I really think that the seeds for this bitter harvest have been planted and I really think Monchi's been a problem. Well, fans are losing um, patience with Monchi, which is something we never, ever thought we'd say. And, um, you know, he needs to act and they are doing their best to sort things out in January. There's clearly no money. That's another question for another day. Why there's no money when they've sold, uh, you know, the two best defenders they've had in their recent history and when they've been consistently qualifying for European competition. But um, there was clearly an absence of money at the start of the season, which is why they had to do desperate things like bringing Isco, which was never, ever going to work. Holberg was another panic signing. Both of those have gone already, uh, not lasting more than half a season. But they bought in um, Papigway from Marseille um, and Sampaoli knows him um, from his time there. and that will bring a bit of energy, I'm sure, to a to a tired-looking midfield. 
Um, they've brought in uh, Brian Hill as well, um, and I think that's a good signing because obviously he knows the club. Uh, he also knows about relegation battle because he had a season fight in relegation um, when he was at Abar. Um, and El Campos has come back um, and he's made a reasonable start considering how long he's been out. He has played so little football at Ajax, a very strange move that was at the end of last season. Um, so there are reinforcements and they did have a good result at the weekend. Um, some of their World Cup stars are playing like World Cup winners as well. I think Acuna was good um, at the weekend. And Montiel is, is is another player they've got who ought to be able to give them more in the second half of the season. So I don't think they're going to go down. Um, they're going to be signing players next summer still as a top flight club. Um, and I don't think there's any suggestion that Monchi should be replaced. He's still the best man to, to sort things out. Um, and they need to give a squad that, that fits the manager. I think their their, their biggest mistake, um, Michael, was um, the fact that at the end of the last season, it probably should have been time for a change. Um, and Julian Lopetegui probably should have left the club then. Not because he'd done this, a bad job, far, far from it, but it just reached the end of... It was the end of a, an era... Um, and they should have looked to someone new and that new man probably should have been Diego Martinez. But whoever it was, uh, he should have been given the summer and the right signings. Uh, and then they wouldn't have been in this awkward situation. They found themselves in a third of the way into the season when you've got a new coach um, and he's, he's, he's inherited a squad that he doesn't really want. Um, but I think they'll get out of it and I'm sure Monchi will bounce back and, and there will be good signings next summer if, if they can sort their finances out and behind the scenes as well obviously sort who wants who the president's going to be um, and the grim thing um, for the club um, is that supporters don't seem to want um, Pepe Castro and they don't seem to want Del Nido's return either so that could be a problem going forward Just before the break let's take one from social Jake Garlic Jake says Elche look doomed but which other two will join them? So Elche are bottom of La Liga on a dismal 6 points, 11 points adrift of 2nd bottom Hitafe and 3rd bottom Celta Vigo. Only 5 points separate Hitafe and 2nd bottom from Almeria in 11th. A lot of clubs could get sucked in here. I think Elche are doomed, yeah, definitely. Um, it's not a great thing to say at the mid-halfway point of the season. I think they've got they've got 6 points, is it? Um and the record is Sporting Kikon in terms of going down with the fewest points. Sporting Kikon went down with 13 points. I can't remember the year. So obviously they're on course to beat that beat that record. Um, and that's not great. It's not great to have a team already out of, the, out of the competition at the midway point of the season at all. Who will join them? I think Cadiz will probably go with them. That will be a real shame as well because everyone loves watching football at, Cad- at Cadiz. Um, and a third team, I think there'll be a team to go down with a bit of quality in it. I think you know, that someone's going to go, despite having players who are very much um, top-flight players. I'm starting to think it might be Hitafi. I think Hitafi are on that sort of negative um, dynamic. Um, they they also didn't have a great summer. They lost um, Mateus Oliveira, didn't really replace him, so we've had the strange sight of Porto playing as a left wing back uh, so far this season. Um, the old Aaron Barry Maximovic heartbeat to the team really has been broken up for different reasons. I think Aaron Barry's injured. I think Maxim- Maximovic, the club, have wanted to sell him so he's not been available to the manager. And the manager is a whole different situation as well. There's clearly discontent uh, on both sides. Um Kiki Sanchez Flores, I think, said last week that he's never known such turbulence at the club. He's obviously an old hand at how it, what it's like to be Hitafe manager. Um, I can see them replacing him before the end of the season. The more managerial changes you make, usually the greater the chance of going down. There's some talk of bringing back Bordelas. Um, I'm not sure that that would work out either. Um, so I think it's looking a little bit grim for them. And in contrast, clubs like Valladolid, who went out and were bold. The easiest thing to do when you're in the relegation zone is to sack the manager. It's a lot cheaper than going out and buying someone who's actually going to keep you up. And full credit to Ronaldo Nathario, who tends to keep faith with his managers, but also this time has, has, has made sure that re- reinforcements have been brought in. And they've got Carl Lannin, top all-time top scorer with Canada, uh, and they got Darwin Machis, and what a start for them at the weekend because Machis crosses and and uh, Carl Arin scores very well taken goal as well, and that gave them three points and they got out of the um, the relegation zone. Although saying that, I think the result subsequent results they might um, they might be back in it. But uh, I think um, 
I think Villarreal are going to be okay. I think Valladolid are going to be okay. Um, and uh, as I say, at the moment, um, let's have a look at the bottom three. Elche, Getafe, uh, Cadiz. I wouldn't be surprised if that is the three that go down. I think logic tells you you're already right, Jakey boy. Um, if Elche have gone to the midpoint of La Liga without a win, um, you know, brutally unable to, to add goals to what I often think is perfectly reasonable quality um, football. But they, you know, with Edgar in goals, often playing heroically, and again they've already conceded more uh, goals than anybody else in La Liga. I don't, even though as I speak, the, the transfer market hasn't quite closed, and you know, were they to conjure up a striker who gets them fifteen goals between now and the end of the season, even so, Elche gone. Your original question was right. Who are the other two? Um, I will I will say that um, my affection for Ronaldo Nazario, and I really like Valladolid's ground, the way in which... The, I mean, these are irrelevant to, to whether the team stays up or not, club stays up or not, but when you go to the uh, Nuevo Zoria and, and you walk out, you, you kind of walk straight onto the training ground and the cafe that Socios members can still go to and watch training. And... I like Valladolid, I like their town, I like the what they stand for, I like the fact that teams in winter are scared to go there because it's, it's a brutal, biting wind blows through your bones. And because Ronaldo's there, I hope that um, what's what Pete said about Darwin, about uh, Larin, proves to be... In a, I also really like watching Aguado play. Um, Pacheta's, a, Pacheta's a joker in the pack in that you, you can see that as much as Valladolid are a reasonable, well-organised and play a, a, a brand of football which looks as if they know what they're doing, the, the, he's one of the man-managers. He's one of the, or the, he's one of the guys whose personality needs to seep into everybody's consciousness at the, at the training ground uh, and therefore you maybe get a little bit extra out of them. So I like having Pacheta around. I do really like Aguado. I think he's a super player. Um, as we speak, Fresneda's not gone. If he stays, I think that includes, that increases Vidalid's chances of staying up. And I'm not dodging your question, Jake, but I'm happier saying what I'd like to happen than, than what will happen. So I'll, I'll be honest and say, I don't know who the other two are going to be. I surely don't know for sure. Um, if I can counter a little bit what Pete said... The one, I'm, the one I'm fearful for is Valencia. It seems ludicrous to say that because when the season began, there was just this uh, feeling of renewed optimism and peace and harmony in that their much-hated MD had been removed. There was a tiny, and I mean tiny, the, the, the hardcore fans still want the owner, Peter Lim, out, um, which I think is, is obviously well to be careful what you wish for. But he, you know, he's been sustaining the club. They don't like the financial mechanism via which he's doing it, I know. But they were on the point of bankruptcy. It, un, unless, and and your man, is it Ben Jacobs, on Twitter keeps saying, Qatar trying to wield money around and all that. Well, unless there's a big buyer of, of, of not just wealth, but worth, not just financial worth, but worth, who's going to take over from them and buy him out, then... That's what's sustaining the club. Anyway, at the beginning of the season with Catuso in, some reasonable trading done on the market, and with several games where Valencia were extremely interesting to watch and fun to watch, you wouldn't have thought that currently they'd be sitting one point above the drop zone, that Catuso would be in danger of the sack again, but they are and he is. And there are, there are times... When you know you 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 drop something in the sink, or you're trying to save a spider instead of it, and and the water's in the sink, and the spider's running around, but the the circular the circular motion of the water takes the spider down the, the the plug hole, and it feels a little bit like that. It feels like Valencia have been scrapping, clinging on, finding solutions, falling out with players, falling out with the media, falling out with fans, changing coaches from the day that Marcelino left. And I, I was vocal then about how stupid that was. 
um, they, they had won the cup handsomely against Barcelona in the Olympic Stadium down in um, in Seville and they'd made it to I mean kick me in the kick me in the cojones if I'm wrong they made it in the Champions League I think not just the Europa League and they and because they had the pin they had the pin with Marcelino they sacked him fucking idiots so I'm worried for Valencia and truthfully everybody underneath Mallorca although Mallorca's points total is not does not make them uncatchable and truthfully although I think there's zero chance of Rayo going down 26 points compared to Cadiz on 19 does not make um, Rayo sitting on top of you know K2 or, or Everest or Mont Blanc uh, and unassailable but I think that Mallorca because they're so bloody stuffy unless um, Morici were injured Mallorca and 10th are just a cut off point where Almeria's unfeasible power and form since they since they learned how to score again has been educational to watch but everybody from Almeria down is in some degree of danger and one of the unifying factors is um, Girona looking at the way they play and, and how many goals they score shouldn't be there um, Sevilla given their power and their history shouldn't be there and, and their upward their current upward trajectory says suggests they won't be Valencia given the way they started the season shouldn't be there Espanyol with a terrific coach like Diego Martinez shouldn't be there Celta Vigo oh, you know they, they, they've got a lovely um, clutch of players within a, an okay squad and there seemed to be an upkick when Carvajal came in and yet they're there on and on and on so while Cadiz and Getafe might look like candidates right now. I think Hitafe can be coached better. I totally agree with Peter that Maximovic and Aaron Barry right in there. It was the thing that um, Kike did as soon as Michel went out. He got the midfield right, he got the shape right, and, and Hitafe were damn good to watch. So I'm genuinely worried about clubs like Valencia and Celta Vigo. But the fact that it might be Elche, Celta Vigo, and Valencia going down. That would be catastrophic for La Liga. Okay, it's time for a break. We'll be back in a moment with a couple more questions to complete part two of this month's QA. Cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. And we're back with a question from Socio Chris Brooks. Hi Graham and Pete, having seen Guardiola work in England for the last seven years, when you compare it with his approach to the media in Spain, how much of a similarity or difference do you see? Can you sense any more scepticism or guardedness from Pep compared to how he would generally be back home? Can you see the cogs turning sometimes when he's interviewed, where he'll sense an opportunity to turn master puppeteer and toy with the media a bit? Yeah, I think it's true that Guardiola does like to work the media. I, I, going back to the period when he was up against Mourinho, it was always seen, certainly here, that Mourinho was the was the master puppeteer, um, and um, Pep never really went down that particular avenue and was above that. Um, and that wasn't really fair because there were many many times when he would send a message in his in his press conferences. I'm not sure how he fares in England. Um, I think he probably feels it's easier. 
um, because uh, he didn't get a rough, he didn't get a, a, um, an easy ride at, at Barcelona. There were always those who were against him, even even when he was winning trophies left, right, and centre, which was pretty much all the time. Um, so he's probably a little bit more relaxed, um, and there's no Jose Mourinho up against him. There's no one really. Uh, to take him on, there's been. I think the the media in, in England were understandably desperate to to create some sort of Mourinho Guardiola style rivalry in the Premier League, and obviously that was a possibility briefly um, when Mourinho was at Manchester United, um, but it never really happened in the Premier League as it as it had happened in La Liga, and he doesn't really have an anti, uh, an antagonistic sort of opposite number. Um, at the moment in the Premier League. In fact, the, 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 the coach that he's going toe-to-toe with this season is his prodigy, isn't it? It's Arteta. So um, I imagine with less pressure, less tension, um, uh, he can be a little bit more relaxed in those press conferences. One thing certainly hasn't changed as far as I know, and he never gives interviews. And I think that was, some, that was something that he established here. It's been taken on by... by um, subsequent Barca coaches and it's something that he it's a policy that he stuck to in England Listen Chris there's a slight change in that Pete's right it's 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 not something Pep does to sit down with newspapers one on one but one of the things he never did in Spain was do even television one on ones and it may may be old hat now but what happened was Marcelo Bielsa who is notorious for his idiosyncrasies with the media. When Pep was a little, um, what was the old David Carradine thing, Kung Fu, he was a grasshopper walking the earth. He went off to, to see Bielsa for a big Barbie in the back garden in Argentina. And Bielsa said, look, never give a one-on-one interview because instantly you do that with one station or one person or one branch of the media, all the others say, well, they got that from you, we want it now. And what he did, therefore, was in, in lots of press conferences when he was at Barcelona, was that he gave very long press conferences. And if you're playing as regularly as, as any top side is now, which is quite often three games a week, that's a huge long press conference before a game, a huge long press conference after a game, and they were interesting and entertaining, but draining, because they were repetitive. There was a lot of idiots asking the same questions. And... You know, the same prior to a Tuesday match and after a Tuesday match or a Wednesday match. And and then the same such that you could be using it, let's say, an hour, three hours a week. Three hours a week for a guy like Pep um, sitting down for half an hour post and pre um, on on a Sunday, a Wednesday and a Saturday, for example. Something like that. Now, in Munich... Several things happened that changed him, that influenced what you've seen at Manchester City because he, there was this, there's this culture of a great deal more openness in German football, a great deal more responsibility to sponsors who demand that players and coaches are accessible. Sabinerstrasse is not a place where you know, it's, it's necessarily easy to get into. But German football, German fans, um, German media are all on a very different standing than what Pep had come from in Spain. And do you remember the, the, sometimes the odd face he would make, like chewing a wasp, when he had to give a press conference in the Bundesliga simultaneously with the, his opposition manager, such that it became a conversation. You know, a questioner would ask one coach, uh, say, Tuchel or Klopp, one thing, and then ask Pep the other thing and play them off against one another. And it became more about an actual debate about, well, we were on top, no, you weren't, or this happened, or this didn't. That began to change him, but so did. He has a, a, a friend who's a, a highly decorated um, cinematographer, cinema director here in, in Spain, and he said to him after Pep Guardiola left, Barcelona burned out and, and not very happy, look, you realise that you've left very little um, recorded... Uh, uh, history of what you felt around this great team. You can you can uh, direct people to go and watch the DVD if you want, but what they're watching will be the football and the goals, not you and your part in this. Now, this um, this close close friend of his suggested that 
he let um, Marty Peranao, uh, a former Spanish Olympian, who in um, at Bayern, and he did um, the 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 book that Backpage Press that that Martin is one of the co-founders of. Um, Backpage Press um, edited it, translated it, and got it um, published in Britain, and it did very well. And Pep then repeated the exercise by letting Marty Peranao into Manchester City a little bit, and that culminated in him coming to England, where. It, 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 it originally in the Sky contract, when they bought the rights to the Premier League, it, it was grace and favour that um, clubs offered interviews, knowing that Sky was a real paymaster. But gradually it became enshrined and contracted that coaches have to give more one-on-one time. So there, uh, Pep has now, been, has now sat down and been interviewed by a huge range of different, um, either BT Sport or Sky Sports um, interviewers. And he's begun to find that if properly prepared and if it doesn't take up too much time, it's not what Bielsa um, promised him it would be. And therefore, in the UK, although Pete's right, you know, there's no sitting down at length with um, the local newspaper or... ESPN or the Athletic or the you know the the, the Times, uh, yet you you do in the UK see a great deal more of Pep than was shown definitely in Spain or um, in in Germany, and what's more, the press conferences are very very different. There there's a lot of um, ideas thrown up in questions for Pep, where the the people in the press conference are looking for their their, their headline. Or their article, whereas in in Spain, particularly because he was a returning hero, because the football was so extraordinary, because he, he got a little bit stuck on whether he would or wouldn't renew his contract, there was a constant um, poking at him about news stories, particularly the news story about what he was going to review. I know people who speak to Pep Guardiola in um, post-match situations. I know a lot of people. And while I find Pep um, an interesting challenge if he's annoyed or if he's uptight about something, and marvellous fun if you can get him happy on good form or interested in the subject. And we, we had a, a real job to persuade him to take part in take the ball, pass the ball and do an interview for us. But eventually he did. We reminded him. He said to us when we asked him three, four times and he said no, he said, this is the player's story. We came back to him and said, listen, we've, we've pretty much spoken to every single player, every key player. Now you have to speak. And he did. Um, so what I would say is that, just as Pete commented there, you, 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 Pep is still extremely astute in some moments about what he's, the message he's trying to get across. And that's about the words he uses, his manner, his, his body language, uh, but I, as I was saying, I know a lot of people who think that he, he plays really direct games, games of favouritism with, with people about whether he enjoys their questions or not. And I know people who say like he deliberately misunderstands questions, he deliberately coughs in the middle of a question in order to put you off because he's a competitive animal. And there are some people who genuinely don't like going up against him after a match. And I always argue, look at the hoops we put coaches through. You, the normal, many viewers may know this, but normally listeners to radio or viewers to television don't know that you know post-match the Premier League gets so much money from around the world that there are stalls set up whereby a manager can easily go around six or seven interviews after a match when he may be, even if he's won, he may be super pissed off at something. Um, he may have lost and be absolutely raging, trying to contain himself. You were asked exactly the same question. Not deliberately, but, you know, most journalists will find the same key points in a match. So you're asked the same thing over and over again. It's like, it can be like rubbing salt in the wound. And therefore, he'll, he, he can often be curt or explosive or sardonic. And in the press conferences, he'll, he'll give sometimes longer, better, sometimes longer, better answers to Catalan journalists who come across and ask him at the end of the press conference. But broadly, I think he's discovered that dealing with the media can be a lot less laborious, uh, sometimes can be useful and fun, 
but definitely can be strategic. These things he's discovered over the many years now that he's been, you know, because he wasn't coming under real pressure until 2008, 2009. And gradually he's got better at it. There is no question that sometimes you see the real raw Pep Guardiola who, who simply is angry or can't believe a particular question. He's not a particularly patient man. And therefore some of the snapping, some of the humour, some of the um, incredulous stares are spontaneous. In other times, particularly the one, was it the Spurs game, post-Spurs, where he went off on one about like, our fans have gone missing, our players have gone missing, I don't see the hunger. Yes, we've won, but we played better while we were losing against Spurs than we did while winning. It was anecdotal that we were, all that stuff. And he really played ball with the interview because he had a point to tell the players. He mentioned the fans a lot of the time, but that was him making public the same thing as he's been saying to his players and saying, look, I've upped the stakes. I'm going public on this. Pay attention. Cancelo's out. Um, I, th I think there are more players whose futures will be curtailed if, if Pep chooses to stay on beyond this season. I know he's renewed his contract, but we're seeing in the media something that I think is a, is a brand new chapter. Right now, I mean, we're seeing a brand new chapter in how Pep Guardiola expresses himself and what extra part of the show he's become. And finally, a question from Robert McIntosh. The good professor says, Graham and Pete, is there anyone out there, Spain or elsewhere, who could take the once michty Aberdeen forward? And if that's too niche, what does an incoming coach at a smaller club need to do to punch above their weight when there are incumbents who are bigger, better resourced and have the winning habit down to an addiction? So if anyone missed the news, this was Aberdeen who dismissed their manager, Jim Goodwin, 19 minutes after the final whistle in their 6-0 defeat by Hibs on Saturday. Ah, Bobby McIntosh, um, this is one where I'm going to be very happy to leave the specifics about what a coach needs to do at a traditionally smaller club in order to punch above their weight. Um, I think he and I, while well, we, we both grew up, he grew up in England, I grew up in Scotland, we've travelled a little bit, but during our time in Spain, it's been magnificent to see um, Hitafe and Granada go far in Europe. Um, neither of them are behemoths of the, of the Spanish game. To watch Villarreal um, go to two Champions League semi-finals, to be with Deportivo La Coruña, which I was in San Siro when they lost 4-1 to Milan, reigning European champions Milan on a night when Deportivo La Coruña could easily have won or, or got a draw, lost 4-1. They take them back to Riazo and beat them 4-0 the next week and and go through um, to, I was in Milan again, <laughs> poor old Milan, when Celta Vigo won there. To, to watch Eibar come up to La Liga and when the, the combining ethos is that there needs to be complete, clear, intelligent and rigorous planning about how the club's resources, whether that be the academy or signing or renewing contracts, fits with the, the coach that you've got. There has to be, there is much less room, almost zero room in a genuinely small club for there to be breakdowns in communication, um, a, a, a resources wasted on a on a keeper who can't play with his feet if the keeper if the coach wants the keeper to be play out with his feet, feet uh, uh, to, to resources wasted on a striker who's got bad personal habits and maybe doesn't train that well although looks good on match days or uh, a striker who thinks he's come to join a counter-attacking team when in fact it's a team that will be on top of other opponents and needs to be a penalty box striker etc etc those mistakes you know, sadly you can make it big wealthy clubs and you can correct them and you can live without them and you can compensate by having superstar players all around that take the take the onus away from you to get it right all the time a small club that synthesis that that coordination of complete clarity about the ideas and how to um, enact them 
better still, best of all, if there's a complete union with the local media and the fans and there's this sensation overall of one plus one equals three. What's the phrase? That the whole is greater than the sum of the parts. There are various different ways to achieve that, but what you can't afford are um, mistakes, miscommunications, um, breakdown in relations, six months where you you don't plan or as well or get ahead of other clubs as well these are the things that I think people might talk about and, and certainly they unite those slightly smaller clubs who have done gigantic things because they've unearthed the right types of talent and characters and unified them all under the the one forward crusade of we're here to do something big. Please let that be what's about to happen at Aberdeen. Um, for what it's worth, Roberto, um, I do genuinely believe that the squad that Aberdeen have this year is better than the one they had last year. More talented, at least. I think from match one, it's been clear that Mr Stewart is not uh, a particularly competent defender runs around a lot um, makes challenges he shouldn't allows others to defend areas where he wants to I think look good picking up the pieces and he's very error prone I, I hope I'm sure he's a likeable fella um, I'm not quite sure how he got through our scouting um, sieve um, but beyond that and beyond some balance in positions um, to mean that McCrory doesn't play at the centre half that he always plays in organising midfield beyond that there were bits um, I thought to to like um, one of the things to make us a proper football team again is to sort out the issue with Conor Barron and um, who hasn't had the season that I would have aspired to him having. And there are definitely issues about um, where he sees his future, what he's willing to do about um, the present. Because I still think, in fact, I'm still absolutely sure that he's a fabulous little player. And therefore, we need more from him. That's as simple as, as can be. Um... But it's it's disappointing because Jim Goodwin seemed a perfectly likable man, um, spoke well about his objectives, and yet long before the humiliations in Edinburgh and the humiliation at Darville, it was clear that there was a disconnect between what he was wanting to achieve, what he um, promised to achieve, uh, and and the potential of, of this squad. Um, even when we were winning at home in that burst of games before the World Cup where there were some big scores racked up. I, for one, for my personal taste and my personal aspirations for the dandies, didn't see a level of, of passing and and cohesive play that that or pressing that really I want to see. And therefore, there may be a fabulous coach out there in, in Spain um, who's willing to move to the northeast of Scotland for a lot less money than he could earn in, in La Liga. But I don't think it's going to happen. Roberto, do you? Um, and equally, I don't know the ins and outs of Scottish football enough to say where does the outstanding talent lie. But what I do, what I do know, there are two things I'm certain of. One, um, a lot of people... Managers, agents have have got in touch with me again for the second time because it happened after Stephen Glass was 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 dispatched and I still miss him. Still feel he was an extremely good coach. Um, there, there's a lot of people um, interested in this job. A lot of reasonably big names interested in this job. Good luck to them with the process. Um, my the other thing I know is that. Um, whether it appears to be right or wrong, I'm convinced that Barry Robson 
for a host of reasons, should be given his job full time. I believe he completely understands the club, its needs, um, the way that the fans, the, the people of the North East expect Aberdeen to play. I don't think we've played that way for quite some time, certainly since the peak of Derek McInnes' era, the peak of Jimmy Calderwood's era. I understand that Barry um, very much favours a, a, a basic formation, which is 4-4-2, but a style of play which is aggressive, which is pressing, which is passing the ball forward, looking to move the play forward at every possible moment when the ball is won back. I like the way that he's made a study of some parts of Spanish football, something I helped him with. I like his personality. I think that he's got um, a lot of what is needed right now in terms of um, managing the squad, bringing through younger players, some of which he's had the responsibility for. And my money goes on... My, my personal choice would be um, that Barry Robson be given a significant amount of time to prove his ability as head coach, not necessarily as an assistant to anybody. He's an interim manager at the moment. It pleases me that he's in charge. Um, I don't know whether I'll get my wish or not. And then when I do, there's no magic book to say, you know, I'm guaranteed to be right. But every instinct I've got tells me that Barry is, um, is, the, is the right is the man with the right ideas and concepts and the ability to see them through for Aberdeen. For all those of you who tuned into the big interview and the big interview Q&A to hear about Elche and Villarreal and Celta Vigo and Real Saragota and Barcelona and Madrid and Atleti and Sevilla and you've bumped into this bit about Aberdeen, I'm sorry, but Robert McIntosh did ask. Pete, over to you. Well, it's something that we touched on in the first half about um, trying to keep hold of players for just that little bit longer and, and, and not letting them go after they've played five or six games. I think that's one thing you can try and do um, to battle against the bigger beasts. Uh, and the other thing is just time. Another thing that we touched on in the first half um, was what a fantastic job Jagabara Sati's done at Osasuna. And, you know, we shouldn't forget that they also soon to win, I can't remember if it was 12 or 13 games without a victory. In, in, I think it was two seasons ago. And not only did he hang on to his job, there was never any suggestion that, that he, would be, he would be replaced. They had absolute faith in him. Um, and they were convinced that he would sort things out and, and, and they would finish the season comfortably safe. And that was how it turned out. And I think having patience and having... Um, a good relationship between your sporting director and, and your coach, um, and that obviously means not just keeping your coach for a reasonable period of time, but also keeping your sporting director for a reasonable period of time, and having continuity and having a a philosophy, which probably less so now, but used to be a bit of a dirty word um, um, around clubs um, in, in Britain, um, very much a Spanish thing that a club should have a philosophy or have a, an identity. Um, but it makes sense, you know, if everyone's going in the same direction um, and you have one idea that you're backing and that idea is reflected in the players that you sign and, and the personality and the profile of the manager and the sporting director, then you can take on um, the bigger clubs. And a lot of the bigger clubs, for all the money, financial advances that they have, um, it's often money poorly spent. Um, it's going to be fascinating to see what happens to Chelsea over the next few seasons, but they may be developing into an excellent example of a club with loads of money, but no real idea about exactly what they want to do. Um, and, you know, smaller clubs um, um, can take advantage of that. And, and in terms of a manager to take over the mighty Aberdeen, I don't know. I mean, there's uh, uh, Jose Luis Mendelibar. I'm a big fan of his. I think he's out of work at the moment. Um, I also very, very rated very highly Eduardo Calvert at Celta Vigo and couldn't really understand why they let him go. I'm not sure either of them, though, are appropriate for uh, Aberdeen. We all know who the Aberdeen manager should be. It should be Graham Hunter. Let's finish this month's Q&A with a message from Socio Richard Cosmala. Hi, Graham. Hi, Pete. It's Richard from Huddersfield here. Happy New Year. Uh, obviously, the year ended in such a sad uh, way 
by the news of the passing of big Simon Hanley. I was so lucky to meet Si outside the uh, Medipro studios in Barcelona. I'd, I'd never met him before and I was just sat down waiting for someone to come and greet me and this guy just tapped me on my back and says, you know, is that not Huddersfield hat by any chance, is it? And yeah, that was my memory of Simon and he took me in the studio, showed me around and everything. He was so proud about what he'd achieved at La Liga TV and such a brutal loss for everyone really it just it's just surreal just hearing his voice on some of the commentaries still and he'll always be remembered for me for the guy who took Spanish football to another level in, in the UK so yeah I just wondered if you could share both your memories of him uh, personally and professionally Graham some of the stuff that I remember from you I remember when you, you were doing them away games in the early uh, days of the uh, channel the road trips that you were having some amazing photos and well, it must have been amazing in some of them cars that you were in some of the banter some of the crack that you had but yeah rest in peace simon cheers guys ah super cause what a what a agri dulce bittersweet um part this is to answer i'm left with such um memories that impinge on on my daily consciousness from simon not because we were like really and buddies for a long, long time. I knew him rel- relatively late in life. I met him a long time ago and then didn't see him for ages until he phoned and said, look, I <laughs> like Blues Brother. We're getting, the, get, we're getting the band back together. <laughs> he he um, phoned up and said, listen, we're starting the League of Television. What do you think? And it took a year longer than Simon had hoped to get the League of Television going. And I felt really um, pleased and honoured to be... Um, to be part of it and initially when it began he was an ill-tempered bugger he felt the pressure of presenting which was so different from commentating and there, and there was a lot of pressure on his shoulders he was the guy who was um, picking the staff and, and looking for the standards to be right and on, on TV for the first time you know presenting on TV and listening to an auto um, to an ear you know words in his ear from an earpiece and refusing to use an auto cue, and and therefore I think initially he felt the stress, but the satisfaction I watched him have as the shows came together in the early years, as as the staff became more defined, when when he found out that I knew Peter Beardsley and that Peter was happy to come across and work with us, I mean he was as happy as a pig in shit, and he just loved Pedro. Beardsley so much he was delighted to get to know Steve Archibald and Gus Poyet with whom he golfed and we, we all golfed and, and there, there were several ex-footballers or current coaches with whom Simon struck up a bond and he was really like a kid in a, in a toy shop and he, he didn't let them know that and he wasn't a fanboy it was just him going hey this is the world I've belonged in all my life when I was an English language teacher or when I was commentating at four in the morning on South American football. This is what it was all about. He, he was a team builder. So he took huge satisfaction in, in putting together, as he called it, my boys, my boys. Duncan McMath and I took huge, well, talked a lot uh, after Simon died about how the latter years in his life, we felt responsible for bringing a lot of enjoyment and happiness back in because as a, as a youth, he'd been a... You know, a three a three handicap golfer, and very very good, very competitive. He played a lot locally, played in a lot of competitions, and he'd just given golf up, partly because of I don't know lack of um, opportunities, people to play with, initially lack of the finance to be able to, to just pay around or, or get clubs, and. I was in the process of playing, you know, a nice pitch and park course, which is really good fun up in the hills outside Barcelona. I invited Duncan to come, not knowing that he'd played. Duncan's very good. We played quite a little bit and then said to Simon, you know, we're playing. He said, oh, I'm really good. Let me play. And he came along and he had one really dodgy round where, you know, in the pitch and park where he just, he didn't look like a golfer. And about two rounds later, he was back and, and working his handicap down even in his late 50s too, he was given about a 14 handicap. And the joy he took in playing at Valromanes with us was, was huge. And you're right on the road doing the commentaries. They were called persos, which I suppose mm, personal appearances. But in, in La Liga Television, they were called persos. And again, 
the idea about, you know, it, it, I'm speaking frankly here, sometimes it ticked him off a little bit that I knew people in football or we bumped into people around Spain who knew me from previous escapades or whatever. And I took huge joy one day when things turned on, its, on their head down in Seville, and I think it was Seville against post-Seville Getafe when Bordalas' Getafe won 2-0, Angel scored them both. And Simon had begun to appear on um, a show with Axel Torres, I don't know what the, f- the club it was called, and he'd been a guest in Spanish on the post-match for Champions League, which meant that suddenly people were recognising him everywhere, he, and he loved that, and <laughs> I was... I was delighted to watch it because he played it quite calmly and quite casually. But as people in a, in a couple of bars on several occasions queued up and went, oh, we've seen you and you're the guy who... And I was so satisfied for him, so pleased for him to do that. And yeah, we were the, not the only two, but we were two of the ones who'd, who'd go out late. We, we had some really big nights, <clears throat> particularly with Geiska. And... Karaoke became involved. We, we had umpteen big karaoke sessions. And honestly, the idea that this all-pervading presence, this all-pervading voice, for, for you guys, you don't hear him or see him on the TV. For us, this was his neighbourhood. I'm in, I'm in La Liga Television now. He lived nearby. Where if you were working, you would often see him up in the office. If he wasn't on shift or if he wasn't commentating, if not, we would go maybe out for the occasional drink afterwards. We, he, he, was a poli- you know, he was always politicking about how things were in La Liga television, who was in charge, who was doing well, who wasn't doing well, who was pissing him off. He, he, it was all consuming for him. And therefore, the, the, the sense of loss isn't solely about there was a character, there was a big character of idiosyncratic nature. You, you keep turning a corner or going into an office or going onto the studio. And I was pretty much o- overcome one Wednesday when it was his show in my mind, subconsciously. The, the, the show where we all, four of us, sit down and, and talk through topics in a, in a, in a Parkinson Jack show kind of way. That was very much his show. He loved it. And the first time I had to do it, Doc Sid, Sid Lowe was on that as well. I was, it took me half an hour before the show and a good 30 minutes during the show to, to shake off the melancholy. And whether word reached your royal ear or not, because um, Pete and I and Duncan and Sid and several of the characters, Steve Archibald, Andrea Orlandi, several of the characters I mentioned, there was a group of about 12 of us, we didn't want more, went out on a really big night um, that, that Thursday, the Thursday after Simon's funeral. And we shared the stories, we had the laughs, we did... A greatest hits evening of talking about him and his his fun, his laugh, his cynicism, his his criticism, his chippiness, uh, his love of music, his love of Bowie. Um, his son Jordy was there. What a cracking guy he is, talented actor, and that helped super cause to just to go and do that to to talk about him with people to laugh. It helped excise a, a real painful feeling. I'm sorry for all of you who swamped us, swamped us with feelings of, this is the guy who took us through La Liga television. This is the guy whose voice I loved. I loved his presentation skills. The, the outpouring of, of respect and, and affection for him, I thought was just fucking magnificent. And still to this day, it's, I find it, I it's not often. There are people I've lost who I really lament and I really miss them for other reasons. Simon, it's more, he was such a big presence that sometimes I literally cannot believe that he's not still here. Yeah, how happy Simon would, would, would be to hear, um, to hear you say that he, he took the coverage of Spanish football to another level. Um, and he did, um, most definitely. In terms of personal and, um, and professional memories, I think, I think things like um, Simon being able to um, shoehorn a mention of uh, Arthur Two Sheds Jackson into uh, a particular edition of um, of Eva La Liga, 
uh, in honour of Terry Jones, who died a couple of days before. Um, his, uh, his karaoke rendition of, of this must be the place, Talking Heads, um, when um, Graham had uh, found the best karaoke bar in the Basque country after a Basque derby, and, and, and that was Simon's choice of song. And just missing the fact that, you know, when you turned up at, at Media Pro in Barcelona to do a show, he would uh, usually be outside uh, having a coffee um, and you just couldn't wait to talk to him. You wanted to talk to him and you never, you never knew what he was going to say to you, what he was going to talk about. It wasn't, it wasn't going to be about the weather. It wasn't going to be how's the family. It was going to be something interesting, something fascinating. And, and I really, really miss that. And I miss it every time I turn up at, at La Liga Television. OK, that's it for the second part of this month's Q&A. Thank you to all our socials who sent questions for this month's show. Graham Hunter and Pete Jensen, thank you. And thanks to you for listening. We'll be back with more big interviews very soon. <laughs> <laughs>